This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Triple R's radiotherapy program. I'm your host, Dr. Anabolics, and it's a big, big day in the studio today, or should I say a tall, tall day. Yes, that's right. The tall man is back in town and sitting right in front of me, looking rested and cool as a cucumber after 12 months away from Triple R. Oh, how we've missed him. And as if to underscore how much we rely on his wisdom, his clinical nous, and his general all-round eminence greeness... He is going to be talking to us today about, wait for it, the meaning of life. Oh. Has he been looking into all things divine? Has he had a road to Damascus epiphany? Or did he just stop for an espresso on the road up from Geelong? We're about to find out. The eloquent and debonair Dr. SK, our movie buff, is here to unpack the psychodynamics of Prometheus and Alien. Apparently, it may have something to do with the Oedipal syndrome. At least that's what his mum told him, and you know how tight they are. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as if that wasn't content enough, Dr. Perry continues her series on psilocybin and death anxiety, a topic just made for Sunday morning breakfast radio if ever I heard one. All this and lots more catch-up. Stay with us and buckle up. We'll be right back. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. Well, tall man, it is good to see your shining face in the studio. Look, it's really nice to be back. Um, I've missed, I've missed our Sunday mornings. I really have. It's uh, one of those things where you know you get used to uh, the company uh, of this crew. It's been fabulous, but uh, I have, I've been busy. I've been very busy, so I had to I had to take a sabbatical. I'm sorry about that. And SK, how are you today? I'm just over overawed to be in the presence of Tallman again. I, I like the crew metaphor because I was thinking he's got the Peter Wayland ageing makeup on, and I, I feel like I should be down at his feet, anointing them David style from Prometheus. But uh, welcome back, Tallman. Yes, yeah, I'm here. Don't worry. And Dr. Perry, hello. How are you? Oh, good morning. I've had a, an early start to the day. I came oh. up from Wilson's Prom this morning. Oh, Wilson's Prom? Yeah, specifically to come here to this radio program. Well, we're just impressed by that. Oh, That's a long damn drive. Hang, hang on, hang on. Really I can trump way. that. Uh, 15 years from Aries Inlet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that does trump it. What a dedicated crew we've got in here. <laughs> now, you also had a bit of catch-up you wanted to um, bring to our attention today. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I was just reading the conversation uh, and there's a couple of articles on there just recently which refer to the World Health Organisation uh, inquiry into suicide around the world and I'm interested in that because... I'm a psychiatrist, but also because I think that suicide should concern us all in society. And that's basically what this report sort of said. We're very good at measuring suicide rates in developed countries like Australia. We don't have such good data in developing countries, particularly in Africa and Asia. But what data we do have does suggest that the rates there are just as high, and sometimes higher, than in more developed countries. And we'd always, I think, had this idea that suicide might be a sort of a developed country sort of a syndrome, but I don't think it is. And the other thing that I found really interesting about it was that they took two case studies, one in Malawi and the other in South Africa, 
And in both of those countries, very high rates of suicide amongst young men in particular. And lots of theories about why that might be and how there's a bit of a dead end for young men in societies where there's a lot of youth unemployment, um, where there's a very strong culture which um, is sort of masculinist and means that men have to have to earn money, make a living, support their family, uh, often at quite young ages. And the idea that it's actually more about someone's ability to find meaning and and to look ahead in their life and see a future rather than necessarily just about whether or not someone has a clinical syndrome like depression or anxiety or, or psychosis and this is something that makes a lot of sense to me because um, I, I think that it is much more about meaning when you talk to people who've thought about ending their life it's not about you know my depression not always about my depression got so bad I couldn't go on it's often about well you know my my partner left me um, my mother died, those sorts of things, the big losses in life. So um, I thought that was interesting because also it brings into context some of the attempts around the world and in Australia to kind of prevent suicide, or I think that's kind of a, a lost cause, to be honest, but um, to minimise rates of suicide in our society. And they're all, they're all centred on clinical kind of settings, you know, in the emergency department interventions based on people presenting with mental health problems. But I think that what we're missing is a whole swathe of people actually who don't come into contact with mental health services because they don't have a mental illness per se. They have a they have a, a life distress. So Yeah, look, it probably ties into the meaning of life, this uh, notion of uh, suicide. But I mean, it's do you think some people are actually programmed for this, that is, they're hardwired, and that is a default position that they will enact. Whereas somebody else, in the same circumstances, that doesn't have that hardwiring, won't go down that pathway. I think that's a very hard question to answer, tall man. Uh, if that were ca- if that were the case, one would expect that the rates of suicide might remain constant over time. Mm. Uh, in fact, they haven't; they fluctuate wildly. And uh, just to pick Perry up on the uh, the whole youth suicide thing, because, you know, you're talking about young men and young men always get all of the publicity in the suicide debate. The uh, picture of an individual in our society who's most likely to kill himself is a male over the age of 85. And I think that uh, suicide in old age is a, is a whole tragedy that we tend to brush under the carpet. But to yeah, use the, the exa- rate, per, rate per capita, you mean? Over no, it's the rate per one hundred thousand males over the age of still, eighty-five. Still. So it's the age-adjusted rate. But I think it's a good example to illustrate how societal influences, as opposed to anything that psychiatry can do, can actually work to alter the suicide rate over time. Because despite the rate in older people being much higher than in younger people, it's actually been dropping significantly throughout the last century if you look at coronial records. And if you look at the big correlates between drops, progressive drops in the older person's suicide rate across time, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything psychiatry has done. Really incremental improvements in things like social services and the social safety net, uh, the fact that we now have aged care pensions, district nursing service, universal health care, residential aged care facilities, the provision of those social changes has done much more to lower the suicide rate than psychiatry ever could. And that's because, as you rightly say, many people, or most people in fact, who go on to ultimately commit suicide never actually have any contact with psychiatry. If we can lower the rates of suicide in the general population by 1%, 
will save many more lives than if we lower the rate in ultra-high risk groups by 10%. Yeah, which, which makes me think that we should be changing the focus of our interventions, really. You know, um, improving the quality of life for, you know, maybe somewhat targeted populations, but not necessarily the well, really high-risk ones. It, is, it is difficult, though, because if you apply that logic to other uh, disease states, like heart disease, the same is true. If you, if you lower the average cholesterol across the population by 0.1 of a, of a unit, you'll save more lives than if you treat people who are at ultra-high risk of heart attacks. But you can't really ignore the people who are currently sick and involved with services, and that's where the tension arises. And one of the problems is that we live in such a ridiculous... In, in psychiatry anyway, not cardiology perhaps, but in psychiatry we live in this risk-averse system which is becoming, you know, insanely risk-averse to the point where no-one's understanding what risk assessment means. Uh, and we, we've been working in this system of predict, contain, restrain, treat... Uh, for so long that, uh, you know, I, it, it really worries me. When people do come to us, we've lost our focus on engendering hopefulness and encouraging uh, meaning in life and encouraging family connection. And we, 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 we've got our young trainees and our young nursing staff sitting around doing eight-page risk assessments, which have been proved to be largely useless. And um, in, in the time that they could be spending getting to know someone, trying to make connections for them, trying to, you know, build hopefulness and build resilience, they're asking them, can you promise me, please, you won't kill yourself tonight, I've got to tick this box here before you go home, and it's it's turning out to be a nightmare. Sometimes I think the only reason we do risk assessments in psychiatry is to stop people we've just discharged, or to cover ourselves when people we've just discharged go out and hijack a plane. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, it, it, we cannot control or predict other humans. We've just got to come to grips with this fact. It upsets our oceanic egos but we cannot predict or control other people and we've got to come to terms with this at some point we can do a lot but we can't necessarily control people speaking of which yeah. i've missed the whole inauguration of trump now surely <laughs> surely we've covered it on this program <laughs> don't you, you worry covered it. can you just bring me up to date of the mental health mm. aspects I, there's been a lot I, I saw that the american association of psychiatrists got involved sort of at the periphery of this to start with about narcissistic personality d- disorders As, did we have a discussion on the show about this yes <laughs> do you think we might have oh, just, just, so you, just you come back bit. and you ask the big questions you know firstly are people hardwired for suicide now do we have any comments on trump <laughs> come back another day <laughs> did, we, did, we draw, did we draw a conclusion <laughs> i think he's in a class of his own i think yeah, that's I what think we, he is too yeah he's really in a class of yeah, his own yeah. well we, we better we better move on we've got lots to cover today so fascinating so that's more to re- see, that was in the conversation that article i must look that up yeah now tall man what have you discovered about the meaning of life look i, I glibly put an the, the meaning of life is that there is no meaning to life. I mean, that is the actual conclusion. But I well, thought we'll be we right could... back after this next card. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the prelude to death, Tormen. That's correct. It's yeah. But I thought I'd use this opportunity to workshop this because mm-hmm. it's not often you get in a room with um, uh, three psychiatrists and can actually just lay it all out on the table. So it was. It actually. Uh, I started thinking about life in general when we were doing the segment on developing good men yeah. and what that meant and and how valuable 
um, that was to society and in general. And also looking at the world the way it currently is structured and the strife that we have and taking a historical perspective. So I started uh, reading about sort of anthropological psychiatry over the eons, you know, are we the same as what we were 600,000 years ago? What's changed? Are we developing? And trying to distill down the essential elements that would describe human behaviour. Mm-hmm. So is there something constant through time that would describe human behaviour? SK, you got any thoughts on what the, what the basic elements of our being are that mm-hmm. drive us? Uh, the search for meaning would be my guess, uh, and I'd base that on the observation that every culture uh, that we know of has a religion. They uh, believe in a higher power and uh, there being a purpose of some sort. So that seems to be a universal human need from my perspective. I'm going to put it in a different way. Yeah. I think all humans want to be known and to matter. Okay. I don't think I can add to any of that. Okay, so I think it's the fear of death. Mm. I think that that drive, that is a base of, a base sense because we can't explain death and because it is so unfathomable to us that... Um, and we're, we're geared to survive. We're geared to survive. Um, that's, you know, that survival instinct is what's enabled us to be where we are today. So it's a very primal level... We, we, and this is why you're having the discussion about suicide, is because we look at that and say, that, that's not right. I, does that separate us from our lower animal cousins? No, it doesn't. But we're all I, driven I'm to coming. survive. Perhaps the only point of differential is we're the only species that knows we're going to die. Well, are we? I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know that we... I think so. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I'm not sure. But I, I think that, you know, even in the wild, every action by an animal is designed to avoid death. That's right. That's right. So. And, and we're, we're good at it. So if we take that as one thing, as one thing that really is a, an essential thing that drives us, and then we look at ourselves, and if you look at yourself individually, what are the emotions that drive your behaviour? And I'd say the next emotion that drives your behaviour is self-interest. That is, your interest in your life and your being and your survival is the next cab off the rank that really drives how you behave and relate to the world. And I've thrown in two other elements. Ambivalence, when we actually don't have a position uh, and we'll go one way or another. And the, and the third element, I think, is love, is, is the sense of love and loving and belonging. Um, that So when you look at... Those three elements together, um, I think that that you know that helps us to explain our place in the world. Do what? you think love can override self-interest at times? We hear stories of altruism and self-sacrifice, where we put another's needs above our own. Yes, I think it does. But I think, and we see lots of examples of of that of human behaviour where the 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 person's own safety, uh, they'll put... And I'll, and I'll use an example about this because what you've raised is a really good point. When we look, the next thing that really matters to us is our, our tribe. And let me put it this way. Around us is our immediate family, our, our spouse, our partners, our relatives and our children. Think of what you wouldn't do for your children. You would, you would sacrifice your life without even actually 
thinking about it. So that is a huge emotion that drives our behaviours. Then if you, and I've, I've taken this, I'm going to be glib about this, but think about it this way. It's our tribe, our, our, our immediate family, and then, you know, it might be our community, broader than that. And then it might be our state, and then it might be our nation. And you can see that, you know, you, people um, will sort of, the interstate rivalry that you have, because you're a Victorian, you know, bloody New South Wales, who cares about them? That sort of competitiveness that we have between states. So we will gather to, we'll agglomerate to a group that we can identify with and, and, and taken to its logical conclusion, it can be around religion. And we will, in fact, go to war over those issues if we can identify, yeah, look, I'm part of this tribe. I belong here. This is where I'm connected. This is what my belief systems are. And so that will drive you in an ultimate sense. Um, now, trying to – and this coming back to this fear of death – I deal with a population of patients who have no hope of survival. It's got this disease that I deal with uh, has a 100% fatality rate. It's guaranteed. So my whole practising life, as it were, is dealing with people that have to come to terms with their death very quickly uh, in the absence of hope. Mm -hmm. Um, And... This is the other thing. Look, when you distill it down, this is why when I distill that down, what matters to, these, to this patient group or to, to people in that part of their lives is their immediate family. That's what it distills back down to. Plus, whether they have... Um, the self-interest really doesn't come into it so much. It's, it's more about the coming to terms with their life ending. Do you ever encounter that sort of bucket list phenomenon where people have a list of things they want to get done before they are not no longer able to do what look, they want to yeah, do? Yeah, I reckon the bucket list is incredibly over, overrated. People look for, um, immediately look for, um, they don't want to be in distress, they don't want to be in pain, um, they, they, they want to not be a burden, um, they want to have some quality to the life and increasingly, increasingly people are making choices. I don't want to live that extra three months. I'd rather be comfortable and, and come to terms with the fact that I'm going to die. Those that can't do that, then they want every second. So I've seen that spectrum of patients where it's every, I want every breath, the Bushido approach to life, life in every breath. Um, Right through to patients who've, uh, and very recently, a patient who said, I don't want any interventions. I don't want any um, thing that's going to prolong the anticipated misery of this existence for me. And um, I want you to assist me in my final days and make sure I'm comfortable because I am now going to stop eating and drinking. Uh, so an active choice. What was your response to that, Tom? Well, my response to that is um, that that's exactly what we would do. I, I don't believe I have the right to impose my moral um, structures on somebody who's actually taking that uh, that vein in their life. Was was that a considered position that they reached, tall man, or an off the cuff? Uh 
position that they adopted on hearing of the diagnosis, for example? Because I think there is a trap in uncritically accepting yes. patients' statements around what they do and yeah. don't want done. You have to exclude the possibility that they might be psychologically unwell uh, or psychiatrically unwell when they make those statements. Yeah, no, this was a very high-functioning person who was very considered uh, and it was, you know, you, you're right, you don't take that at face value. You have to then go through a process where you're constantly seeing that person in that position and what's driving them and the pressures are there you know are there other pressures that are making them feel this way this was based on anticipated suffering um and sure you know the the anxiety of that the anxiety that that caused and then that person getting control and deciding i'm going to choose when i'm going to die on the one hand they're making a request of you that as they're approaching death your job is to keep them comfortable rather than to actively intervene they seem to have gone a step beyond that though in stating that they're not going to eat or drink from this point on because that's like bringing it forward and people can die within days of making that decision around about 14 to 21 days is the usual limit if you don't take fluid um much longer if you take fluid um but it's an active choice that well, yeah. they can make plus the the, the effort in eating and drinking was such that uh, this condition causes um, difficulty with swallowing and speaking. So by the time th they got to that point, they were unable to articulate words. They could write and they could still think and communicate, but they couldn't speak and eating and drinking was incredibly difficult. Will you be under pressure to put an intravenous line out at some point for this man if he dehydrates rapidly? Will somebody, will somebody come to you and say, this is not right, we should be... Putting a drip in or something? Uh, that, that might be the position of somebody external to the patient, but not, not when it's to the patient's relatives who are all They're in agreement. Board. All in agreement. That's, well, that's, a, that's a key factor, isn't it? Is, mm. is not dying of thirst essentially a particularly unpleasant way no, to go, though? No, no, see, this is, the, this, is, this is really poorly understood, but there's good literature on this, that, in fact, not eating and drinking is not distressing as long as um, other symptoms of pain and discomfort can be relieved, uh, being without uh, fluid and food is actually not distressing. It's actually more comfortable than having to use your bowels and your bladder um, when you, when you, you know, in this particular condition in any event. But so all of these things for me, you know, really, I suppose you, you really do want to distill down, you know, how is humanity going to survive how is humanity going to survive and so it, it goes to those questions we were we were very involved in you know pushing this idea of having good men and developing good men mm. i'd take that broader now and say we need to develop good people uh with a considered approach to life it's not just it's not just a male issue this any longer this is a worldwide problem we have can it be explained or are we just on this roller coaster buckle up and see how it all all ends and if we could identify meaning in everybody's life and what drives everybody could there be a better future for humanity could that actually be the case okay well, what, what about what about this you see i i have no uh, religious beliefs so i don't i don't believe there's an external meaning to my life i think um I've, I've arrived here through a magnificent wonderful inexplicable accident of my genetic the selfish gene took care of itself and here i am 
my, my answer to this question is not to say, what is the meaning of life? My answer is to say, if I want my life to mean something, I better go out and make it mean something. That's my answer. And so uh, it's, it's going to be what I do to my fellow man, to other people, how I leave, what I leave behind, what I do that's going to make any difference in the people around me. No one can tell me. No one can tell you. No one can tell any of us if there's any external meaning. We're never going to know until we, if we die and hit the pearly gates and I'm wrong. But, you know, while we're alive, we can, we can make our lives mean something by our own hand, can't we? Well, I think that that's right from an educated uh, upper-middle-class perspective. But if, uh, let's oh, use come the, on. That's the, not just an upper-middle-class. Anybody no, no, can is. make their life no, mean no, something. No, I don't, believe, I, th- I don't believe that's true. And that, I think that's, in fact, the, the, that's, where the, that's where this undoes itself. Take mm. Prince Harry. Look at the life he's got mm. and the enrichment of his life compared to somebody from a suburb where there is no employment, there is a high drug prevalence, there is no education and there is no uh, fulfilment or enrichment of life. How, how do you translate all of that equally to both to both? Well, that's, diff- that's a different question. No one can say there's... Dis- we, you and I have had c- countless conversations about disadvantage around this table. Disadvantage is a fact. That's not what I'm saying. But that doesn't stop people trying to make what they have into something meaningful, trying to help other people, trying to do what they can to get a foothold in the world and, and assist their family. That doesn't stop that happening. Otherwise, you're saying that people in that situation have no meaning and can have no meaning. That's, no, no, that just operate, no, just operate out of self-interest. I think you've both got a very post-industrial revolution <laughs> view on this topic. If, this is if, Sunday morning <laughs> shit, man. <laughs> if, if you go I thought back, this would get heavy. I knew this was going to get heavy. If you go back to the days before the Industrial Revolution, people didn't worry mm. to the extent that modern man does about whether life had meaning or not. Uh, a person's life back in the day was you were born into a small village where your father was the blacksmith or whatever, from the moment you were born, you knew what your life was going to hold for you. Your destiny was to succeed your father and become the blacksmith and in all probability never travel 10 miles beyond your origin of birth. You were also born into a societal context where religion played a much greater part and uh, this sense of security that after death there would be something better was all the meaning that we required. I think this is a very sort of uh, modern navel-gazing sort of discussion. We, we lack meaning nowadays because when we're born, unless you're Prince Harry, you've got no real sense of what life holds on, for you and you have Greek to create external meaning. The Greek philosophers talked about meaning. Come on. The Greek philosophers talked about meaning in life and what was going to happen. What it's did not, they say about it's not, it? It's not, recent, it's not a recent preoccupation, but, but, Sean. But religion played a much bigger role in society. And in the absence of religion, if you don't understand something, if there's something you can grab onto that gives you a faith in something better than what you have or gives you some direction in the way you live your life, that helps. And we don't have that. I'm of the same belief system as yourself. I was just wondering, Toolman, whether as you're ageing, (laughs) clearly uh, you're you're searching for meaning and you'll be back here in a couple of years and you'll have got religion. No, I I don't think think it leaves you with nothing. I don't understand that. It doesn't leave you with nothing. It leaves leaves you with the magnificence of the world and the magnificence of everything around you. Yeah, I agree. But but that's an educated view. I I think that that's an educated view. And what what I want is something that is very – what I'm looking for – is something that that is applicable to anybody, anywhere, that's universal. 
So I think drugs is the answer. <laughs> That's what I'm going to talk about. I, th- I think we, we had it earlier. I mean, uh, uh, anabolics and I aren't necessarily at a point of difference. Uh, the need for, for meaning, uh, the, just our meaning has changed. We used to unquestioningly accept that mm. there was a religious, a, a greater meaning to life in the sense of there being a God and an afterlife. Mm. Now we're much more reliant on making our own meaning. Yes, uh, I think that's true. And the ability to do that, um, I think, varies according to the socioeconomic circumstances that you're, the, the roulette wheel throws you into. And your capacity for introspection. So, look, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I'll st- I've, I've introduced the notion, the search, the mm. question. Um, it might be something that I, I can revisit sequentially over the next decade. Yay, come back, come back. <laughs> both of you, both of you come back. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. So this is what I'm going to talk about. Now, Dr Perry, come on. This is, this is um, you're going to tell us how your uh, drug issue plays into the meaning of life. Yeah, well, that's right. Exactly. It was a beautiful uh, preamble, actually, to this discussion. Um, so I suppose... And and um, for people who didn't actually hear what we were talking about um, when they were listening to the Finn brothers, uh, we were getting a bit of an education. As doctors, maybe we think that we have more of a sort of social and um, and historical understanding of, of the way that thought has evolved through the ages than we actually do. And I think it is true that the way that people think is really influenced by the history and the culture that they exist within and how you interpret your life and its meaning. Um, <clears throat> So I think that's approximately what Kent was trying to say. But I think he would say it much better. So next time we need to give him a microphone. Um, I I wanted to talk a little bit about the use of psilocybin, <clears throat> which is another hallucinogenic drug. So I've spoken about ketamine and about ayahuasca in previous sessions and, um, and the increasing interest in their use in psychiatry to ameliorate some of the distress that's associated with illnesses that we don't know how to treat, like obsessive-compulsive disorder or substance use disorder or, in fact, states like um, the state you're in when you face death where there is nothing we can really do to alter that fact. And so what we need to maybe address is the frame of mind that people are in when they are at that point in their lives. Um, Psilocybin actually was um, isolated in 1957 uh, and was uh, of great interest in the 1960s, which is when a lot of... Um, research was done in psychiatry with hallucinogenic drugs uh, and that was all sort of shut down by Nixon in 1970. Um, yeah, great show. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it seems. It seems that's true. And and in recent times, with a bit of a loosening of the kind of restrictions on the use of these kinds of uh, drugs, there's been a lot more interest in, in how they might enhance people's experience of life. So psilocybin is similar to these other drugs that I've mentioned in that it is um, an hallucinogen and has a transient sort of euphoric and, um, and, and altered state effect on people's state of mind. Um, and it seems to have a, a short-lived effect on people's depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms as well, which is, lasts for perhaps a few weeks. Um, but not necessarily longer than that. What it seems to have an enduring effect on is people's view of the world and their place in it and their sense of what the spiritual and and uh, and connectedness dimension is um, between themselves and other human beings and also their sense of a greater purpose and meaning to their life and to the lives around them. So it's being used uh, in the context of terminal cancer 
uh, in New York University. Uh, and um, in, and I think it adds an extra element. Sorry, Tallman, did you want to make a comment? Yeah, look, so what you're talking about is removing the fear of death. No, I, I don't... Well, maybe what I think I'm talking about is adding an element to palliative care, which is not just palliation. So to me, that's a, palliation, the term suggests that we're yep. trying to ameliorate distress. But actually, I think with the use of psilocybin and, and other hallucinogens and, and also non-drug methods of trying to help people integrate this point in their life with the previous points in their life and look back on their life as a coherent whole is to introduce a sense of meaning and, and, and perhaps give them a sense of control and power, which they lose at this point really quite powerfully as, you know, as every system starts to kind of break down and, and stop working. So... This comes around really, if you look at the arc of somebody's existence, the thing that they deal with last is the death process. It's very hard to get a in their 20s to think about the necessarily the end of their life or their, their mortality. And, you know, we talk about teenage boys being they are immortal. <laughs> they approach life as immortals. Uh, and... So we, we never really consider this. This isn't in cultured. We don't have it in our culture to actually have this discussion throughout life, that life comes and life goes. We don't in this culture, but do you think that's because this is a baby boomer culture where it's all about youth and looking young and being young and, and about, you know, the never-endingness of life? You know, you can have, you can have uh, plastic surgery and you can have growth hormone injections and, you know, you don't actually have to address any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, look, I don't know. I, I, I do. I'll relate one personal example, I guess. I did have one of my sons tell me in conversation that he was going to be very sad when I died. <laughs> and he said it literally just like that, without, without fear. Or, but he was recognising, this is going to affect me. I'm going to be very sad when you die. Um, now, rather than run away from that, comment i saw that as a, an opportunity to say well you know this is this is part of living part of living is dying you know but look look at look where i've been look at you look at the, so finding that meaning so we don't do that as a culture we avoid it because we're terrified of it and look it's inevitable i'm sorry folks <laughs> Taxes and death, <laughs> guaranteed. But do you think it might be just our culture that likes to avoid the idea of death? I think it's most cultures because it's the complete unknown. It's, and I hate to trivialise this, but I, I'm going to. Uh, Harry Potter, Dumbledore got it right. Death is but the next great adventure for the organised mind. Now, no, seriously, you see, you know, these are glib things that you, you come across, but the, I, I, I want this all out on the table. See, I look at it differently. I'm completely ready and willing and knowing that I'm going to die. It doesn't, it's not, never far from my brain. It's never far from my consciousness. I think about it daily and, how to, and maybe how to prevent it and what to do. But I think about my death. I don't deny it. I absolutely know. I talk about this thing regularly with, you know, if I get hit by a bus, what I'm going to do, where my ashes are going to... I talk about it all the time. But you have to compartmentalise that to function. Sure. Oh, you do. You we can't. Can, yeah. We can't be navigating yeah. about death. Or, I mean, you've, <laughs> no. got, you've got to, you know, yeah. hope for tomorrow, you know. All, you know. all this from a woman whose hobbies include photographing tombstones. <laughs> 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 my, my point exactly. <laughs> 
So you've got to have some. You've got to have some level of, um, you know, uh, not denial, but you've got to put it in a little bit of a patch, don't you, to, to get on with living? I think it focuses your mind, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Makes, makes everything precious. Yeah, I agree. That's right. And you're like, boy, I really do want to go to this place and do that thing before it happens. Of course, it, ca- it can do the reverse. It can make you so self-interested that uh, that you know you can't integrate properly into society because you're only driven by your your that's driving your self-interest and that can be overwhelming and I suppose in some ways that's narcissism mm. so I think just coming very briefly back to psilocybin <laughs> can, we, can we get this drug by the way <laughs> you can if you go to New York and you've got pancreatic cancer okay. um, New York University is running a trial where they do uh, give people the opportunity to take this drug and it seems to have an enduring effect on their outlook Um, in terms of what they think is important, how they feel about the end of their life. Um, What does it actually do? Is it it a a memory thing? uh, It's a 5-HT2A antagonist. Mm. So it's just just a a serotonin active um, metabolite, the psilocin, that acts in the brain. Um, But, yeah, it seems to act just like all the other hallucinogens, which is it gives Mm. you a greater sense of, you know... an understanding that the senses that you usually use are not the only ways in which you can perceive the world and they may not be the finite end of what exists, I suppose. So people talk about an openness to spirituality which is enhanced after the use of this drug. I I read an article in The Age only yesterday about some fellow's experiences taking an acid trip and uh, he took it after he'd had... uh, was contemplating taking it in the period immediately he'd just had really bad news regarding his career and the anxiety that it generated in him was that he would have a bad trip because he was in a negative mind frame because of this career disaster. I would have thought that people who are very conscious of their impending mortality might be prone to having bad trips. Yeah, well, that's actually a good point. And they talked about that a little bit in the article. Um, They try and make it as pleasant as possible. So they've got this uh, clinic room which has been kind of painted nice colours and they've got, you know, a little orb sitting on the side table and they've got potpourri and whatever. God, that'd give me a bad trip. (laughs) (laughs) They've also got a companion who sits with you. Um, It's one of the clinicians who's running the trial and if you are having a bad trip, what they suggest is that you focus on the external world because the difference between these kinds of um, sensory alterations and, say, a psychotic experience is that you can come out of these experiences at will if you focus on, you know, touch, pain, light external sensations it can bring you out of it how do we guard against the worry that this is a mechanism for making um the last stage of life more comfortable for the clinicians so we can sit around not actually talk about the big questions but feed somebody a pill that's going to send them merry and we don't have to actually have those conversations how do we guard against that risk because we've already heard from tall man that we don't tend to address these things sometimes when we should are we just protecting ourselves from the awful last days of someone's death or yeah i think we might be and maybe we're protecting them from that as well um maybe it is all illusion but uh i guess that's the question that is hopefully going to be answered to some extent have they got any early results from well the uh they've got a few early results they've got very low numbers i think so far it's about 20 something that they've got and they've been running it for several years now i suppose um what they've noticed is that people seem to be less uh distressed Okay. After that experience, well, that's and that's an important thing in itself, I think. Yeah. Would you would you use that if you could chance in your population, Torment? Do you I, I don't know. Mm. I'd need to know more about that. 
uh, drug, but in certain circumstances where somebody's pre-existing anxiety, if they had an anxiety disorder, uh, that is pre-morbidly, they were known to be very anxious, this might give them some, some relief, improve the quality of their life. Uh, yes, you would. Would you be able to differentiate that uh, drug effect from giving the same person a big whack of opiates or benzos to I'm not sure their I would. anxiety? I'm not yes. sure I would, yeah. Triple yeah. R, not for everyone, for anyone. SK, you've been to the movies. Tell us what you've learned about aliens oh, and Prometheans. Well, look, this uh, this audience and these this crew in the studio would know that I'm a big fan of the Alien series, mm. so I was uh, positively tumescent recently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now, the, uh, did you have to give me that image to walk out of the studio uh, with today, uh, really? Just trying to lighten the mood. But, uh, it, it's actually an expansion on this morning's themes of creation and the meaning of life mm. because uh, Prometheus uh, in particular and uh, certainly Alien Covenant, which expands on the themes in Prometheus, really deals with this from the point of view of an artificial intelligence, uh, you know, that being the character David, played by Michael Fassbender. And uh, in the interest of time, I think we're going to mostly concentrate on Prometheus in the segment this morning and maybe Alien Covenant a bit later, but <laughs> I think Prometheus uh, will go down as an underrated film, mm. much as Ridley Scott's Blade Runner was when it was yeah. initially released. I think it's one of those yeah. slow burners that when people look back on it in future years will come to realise the depth of the ideas that it dealt mm. with. So if uh, human beings have anxiety about creation and about death and where we came from and what the purpose of it all is, imagine what a self-aware artificial life form might be. And that's what we're dealing with with the android David. I'll have to assume some basic familiarity with the plot, but essentially uh, we, when we first meet David in Prometheus, it's clear that he's fascinated by the ideas of creation and of God. The first time we see him, he's accessing the dreams of Elizabeth Shaw, the female uh, lead character in the film, and uh, her early life experiences are reminiscing about her father, who was a missionary, and uh, the death of her mother and what that meant to the family. And we learn throughout Prometheus and Alien Covenant that David very much wants to create himself in much the, the same way that he was created. There's an interesting scene in Prometheus where we see him styling himself after Peter O'Toole in Lawrence of Arabia. He adopts the hairstyle that O'Toole had in that film and he repeatedly watches the film and he in particular seems fascinated by one scene where he uh, does a little, where Lawrence Arabia does a little party trick with a, a match and sort of stubs it out on his hand and uh, his friends express amazement and doesn't that hurt? And... Uh, Lawrence of Arabia says, certainly it hurts. The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. And he repeats this little mantra to himself over and over in the film. And I think what he's referring to is trying to bear the slings and arrows of existence and the barbs that are thrown at him by humans who know what it truly is to be human, whilst having to pretend that it doesn't really bother him. We see a, a monologue by the age makeup Peter Wayland uh, in his introduction to the crew in Prometheus, and uh, he says that uh, David is the closest thing I'll ever have to a son. And we see David swell with pride at that comment, where Vickers, the Charlize Theron character, 
who is the actual biological child of Peter Wayland, rolls her eyes. You know, she's got her own daddy issues as, uh, <laughs> as Vickers. Wayland goes on to say, unfortunately, he is not human. He will never grow old. He will never die. And yet he is unable to appreciate these remarkable gifts, for that will require the one thing that David will never have, a soul. And there's a cut to David and we see his expression change almost but not quite imperceptibly. You know, he is deeply cut by this remark. So uh, David is acutely aware of the fact that he's not human and is a creation. And David in Prometheus is just as fascinated by these engineer characters as Peter Wayland is. Uh, in the scene where the crew uh, find uh, an engineer head and try to resuscitate or reanimate it and it explodes, David observes Riley, you know, perhaps disappointedly, mortal after all. You know, he's as disappointed in the fate of his creator's creator as uh, perhaps his creator is in him. We see this tension between the artificial son of Peter Wayland and the real child of him as well, the, the Charlize Theron character. There's one scene where David is communicating with Wayland in hypersleep to receive instructions, and when he removes himself from that room, he's confronted by Vickers, who demands to know what Daddy has told him and uh, you know, threatens him basically with dismantlement unless he uh, tells her. Uh, throws him against a bulkhead and threatens him. David sort of defuses that situation and uh, ends the scene with, cup of tea, Miss Vickers? <laughs> Which, when you think about a subsequent scene in Alien Covenant, is really poignant, so perhaps more on that later if we have time. Uh, David, at this point, starts messing with the black goo that we learn creates life and can mutate life. He puts a drop on his finger and approaches the other scientist, Holloway, who offers him a drink. David refuses, saying, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid it would be wasted on me. Holloway, who's drunk, uh, responds, Oh, yeah, I almost forgot. You're not a real boy, are you? And again, you see hurt flicking across David's face. He's been reminded that he's the other. He then converses with Holloway, uh, almost uh, trying to determine Holloway's own level of commitment to finding the answers that Prometheus has been uh, sent to find. He says to Holloway, why do you think that your people made me? And Holloway's uh, response leaves him hollow again. We made you because we could. You know, was the motive behind David's creation so petty and so insignificant? There was no higher purpose other than we made you because we could. Uh, and then Holloway says, I guess it's a good thing you can't be disappointed, hey? <laughs> and at this point, uh, David decides to dip the finger with the black goo on it in Holloway's drink, and uh, that results in Holloway's ultimate mutation and death. But I suspect he may have pulled back from the brink, particularly if Holloway had given him a, uh, a different answer. So he, he's receiving no affirmation of his existence? And, and no answers, and he's received and no, no answers from this trip to find the engineers who were mankind's creators. And the very opening scene of Alien Covenant, for example, you know, we see... Uh, David's first moment of self-awareness when he opens his eyes and is confronted with his creator. And uh, David actually asks Peter Wayland in that scene, 
uh, if you created me, then who created you? Mm. And Peter Whelan becomes really irritated at that point and returns to his Bugatti throne chair and changes the topic of conversation. You know, instead of getting David to play a, a Wagner sympathy, he says, a cup of tea, please, David, which re-echoes <laughs> yeah. that uh, yeah. comment from Prometheus. And then he has to sort of reiterate it when David fails to comply immediately. He says in quite a harsh voice, Tea, please, David. And I got the sense from watching that scene that he was very much putting David back in his place. You know, your purpose is not to fulfil some sort of lofty self-realisation ambition. It's to serve mankind. And I think he was reiterating that point. So is this, is this an allegory about how we are meant to serve our creator who tells us to do things for him? Is that what you're saying, that this is, this is really Scott's message? Well, perhaps that's one take on the meaning of life. You know, both films are really uh, obsessed with this idea of why are we here and where did we come from? And it's one possible interpretation of it. We see scenes in Prometheus where Wayland awakes from hypersleep. Uh, David is cleaning him up, but very much he's anointing his feet. You've got Wayland sitting there in a chair in a white robe, and David is being subservient to him and cleaning his feet and pouring water over them. It's a very sort of Christ-like scene in the film. Later on, you know, we, we see when Wayland finally does confront his creator, they stumble across an engineer who has managed to survive. There's a scene where David speaks to the engineer and he says something which changes the attitude of the engineer dramatically to the extent that he rips David's head off and kills Peter Wayland and starts killing all of the other crew members as well. And one of the things on the internet forums has been, what does David actually say to the engineer that provokes this wrath? There is actually an answer in the internet out there. Uh, the film employed a linguistics consultant who you actually see in the film uh, as a screen presence, a video project projection teaching David an ancient language that uh, it's felt the engineers are likely to speak. Uh, this uh, linguistics consultant was actually a, a PhD in linguistics called uh, Dr Anil Biltu, and the language that he was speaking to David was uh, Proto-Indo-European. And uh, this linguistics consultant was able to translate what David said to the engineer in Prometheus. And he said, uh, this man is here because he does not want to die. He believes you can give him more life. We didn't which, plan this theme today, did we? We no, didn't no, plan no, it one no, iota. No. Synchronicity, <laughs> Jung would say, but it's very much apropos of what you were saying, Tallman, the fear of death. And you could argue that what David said to the engineer, it was the literal truth. That was Wayland's purpose in visiting the engineer's homeworld. But equally, you could argue that he could have raised the topic somewhat in a more tactful way that would have pre prevented the engineer from then running amok and killing everybody. You might say that he was fulfilling the literal purpose of his program whilst knowing perhaps the effect that these words would have upon uh, the, the creator. In Alien Covenant, just very briefly, because I've got uh, a minute or so left, uh, the, there's a scene where David is seen to actually exterminate the, the race of engineers. Uh, he knocks the whole race off. Why did he do this? Uh, Ridley Scott, in an online interview, uh, was able to explain David's motives. The engineers periodically visit the worlds that they have seeded with life, and will exterminate them if they feel that their creations have lost their way. And Ridley Scott's idea in the motivation behind 
David killing off the engineers was that he views the engineers themselves as a disappointment to him. They are flawed creators and he is taking the opportunity to exterminate them for their mistakes as well anabolics. Oh boy. Should we go and see Alien? Is it worth seeing? Oh you should. I enjoyed it more the second time. I didn't get on to the whole Oedipal thing but perhaps Ah. more on that later. Next time. Okay well it looks like we're going to have to finish finish off with the scientists are waiting. Thank you so much everybody for a fascinating discussion today that's going to go on and on and no doubt next week as well and on to the future. Thank you Ken for keeping us sane and on air and I also want to say goodbye because this is my last uh, session on radiotherapy uh, after 15 years I'm signing off and handing over to the to the team to carry on and I want to thank everybody on radiotherapy and, and triple r for, for the wonderful times I've had in this studio and uh, I'll be listening with um, passion and enthusiasm on into the future and uh, looking forward to hearing all the great things that are going to go on so goodbye and thank you everybody thanks to everyone in the studio and wait for the Einstein team this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.